Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another super exciting episode of the Blockchain Advisor, where we discuss everything that's related to finance, options, cryptocurrency, bonds, stocks. And we are having another amazing interview today with Ann Higgins. Ann was a one of the few female brokers on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And yes, it was a male-dominated business. It was nothing but a huge cesspool of testosterone. Yet Ann uh, moved gracefully across the trading floor and being in the trading pit never seemed to lose her composure, never seemed to get angry, uh, and kind of duked it out with the best of them and working in what is was otherwise, like it was like an all-guy world. So Anne, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here and to get your perspective. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed watching your interviews and I thought I want to um, take a shot at it too and have a way to preserve some of these memories. So as I mentioned, um, people that I know now in my life now away from the floor uh, can't believe that I did that and I really did do it. You really did do it. So yeah. Anne, tell me, um, just give us a little bit of background. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? What were your interests as a young girl? And what brought you to the crazy world of open outcry trading? Right. Well, I grew up in Evanston and um, there were no people in my realm that were associated with the markets at all. I didn't know anything about it at all. Growing up, no friends of the family or uh, family members or anything. And then um, I went off to college and I came back and worked for a while. And then I went back off to a different school. And once, and so I was just sort of floundering around. And one summer I came home and one of my best friends from high school, Sarah Phillips, was working on the exchange. And um, she was like, I could get you a job down there as a runner. Okay, you know, whatever. I don't really know what it is. And I had never visited before. Mm -hmm. And um, so she got me on with Mike Altman, which was one of the greatest moves of my life. <laughs> and I started working there that summer. And um, I told my parents, because I wasn't off on my own yet. I said, you know, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay there because I'm really not dedicated to my college career. I'm just there because I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. And I think I can really um, have a future there and you don't have to have a degree to be successful. You just have to work hard. So that was how I ended up there. So what year was this? 1977. Wow. So you were an early adopter. So, Anne, if you had not have been friends with Sarah Phillips and or if things had gone a little bit differently, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Like what was 
your interest? <laughs> oh, I'm, I like um, artsy things, but I learned along the way that that was just going to be a hobby, that there was not going to really be a way that I could support myself doing art. I've done photography since I was 10 years old for a hobby, and um, I've always liked crafty type things, which is just a fun thing to do, but it's not a living. And so I, you know, I really didn't have a good direction in life. I really wasn't sure. Judging by your background, I'm sure maybe it was music that you were probably destined to get involved with. So do you play an instrument? I do not. And um, my husband does though. And actually these are his CDs here. And I always say that there's an, I have an important role as an audience member because you need audience people too when people are performing. So. Sure, sure. All right, so 1977, uh, you start at the, so I just graduated high school in the spring of 77. And so you're, you, you get a job, you're working down uh, downtown at the exchange and you are introduced to Michael Altman. Did Sarah Phillips work for Michael Altman at the time? Because I seem to remember her being more independent. Right. She was working for Dylan Reed at that time with uh, Lou, I don't remember his last name, and Janine Zuroff, who became Janine Wallace. Oh, my gosh. I remember her. <laughs> yes. Okay. We'll, get, we'll, we'll go back to that, but go ahead. Right. Right. And uh, she and Michael were um, living together at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, I knew I had met him before. Um, you know, anything about working for him. And mm -hmm. then um, he was kind enough to offer me a job. So that's terrific. Well, I started at the Options Exchange as a employee of the, the CBUE working as a book clerk in the Ford, uh -huh. Berry and Kermagee pit. And just bear with me for a second. And after okay. I was there for about eight months, Tommy Wallace came in clearing mm -hmm. first stop. Mm -hmm. And he was dating, I think, Janine or Jeannie. Janine, yeah. Janine, and I remember when he bought her that engagement ring, it was literally, coming from a very blue-collar family, we had little flecks of, this was <laughs> the biggest engagement ring I have ever seen in my life. It was a massive rock. And I'm like, wow, this these guys in the CBUE are doing okay. You know, and she was, uh, you know, pretty girl, and Tommy was a, a good guy from, from my memories of the pit. Right, right. So, yes, and... Um... So then I don't remember exactly what, how Dylan Reed evolved and went away and Sarah became a market maker, but that did happen. Mm -hmm. And Janine came to work for us, work with us. So um, I feel like um, she may have become a broker right before me and then I became a broker. So I was the second one at our uh, so, so then Drexel you were a broker Burnham. back on the old trading floor when it was like yes. seven and a half? Okay. Yes. Okay. And so were you responsible for a an appointment of stocks? Did you work one part of the trading floor or did they just send you everywhere? We just went anywhere. So uh -huh. um it was, you know, exciting and um Nerve wracking. <laughs> I mean, because I was a runner for probably about 14 months or so before I became a phone clerk, I became, you know, I knew the people well in all the various 
pits or not well, but, mm-hmm. you know, well enough. And so I had a high level of um, being comfortable of being around them in the pits and so forth. But the Drexel Burnham, I mean, it was a pretty small footprint, all things considering that I remember. Maybe I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. it seemed to be like, you know, Michael and like five other people. I mean, am I wrong? Was that just an incorrect perception or was it still a well-oiled but small group of people? Um, it grew. And on the old floor, we had our first, um, what were they called? Our first desk mm-hmm. that had a couple of wire clerks there, right. a couple of phone clerks, a floor manager, and a couple of few brokers and some runners. And then we expanded to another desk on the opposite end, sort of by Teledyne and the one that was next over from it. I can't remember what was over there, but um, so we had a booth over there eventually too. Excellent. And so I don't really know anything about Michael Altman. Was he, did he already work for Burnham and then he was asked to open up a desk or was he doing something else and somebody hit him up and said, Hey Mike, why don't you work for us and get us going on the CBUE? Cause I don't really know his background. Just like for just, 30 seconds of, of my right I know he was in the business in New York and this floor was opening and he came out and I'm not 100% sure how if it was Drexel that got him mm-hmm. brought him out or if he joined after he got out to Chicago so would you say that sorry uh, Michael I don't remember <laughs> that's okay that's okay so do you remember um, what you're, what you were going through, what you were, you were remembering as, so here is a woman from Evanston, kind of artistic, uh, not business numbers, finance related, I'm guessing. And here you have to take a, a test to become a member of the Chicago board options exchange. Were you cramming and studying everything you could, or did you just actually pick it up pretty quickly? Um, I felt like I picked it up pretty quickly. So I was, well, you know, I had a good base of knowledge when I had to take the CBOE test, but uh, Drexel decided for some reason to buy a board of trade seat and exercise it for the CBOE seat. Mm-hmm. So I had to take the board of trade test. That was a tough one. I, I failed that one. Yeah. That was I one. was shocked that I passed and I almost think that they just let me pass because they knew I wasn't going to be trading there or something, right. but. Yeah, that was, uh, was a lot of studying for that board of trade test. I did the same thing too. Uh, I, um, I mean, it's ironic and I always laugh because I was taking the test. And again, I grew up in Evanston. Yes, we are as a family, we traveled in Wisconsin and, you know, did things and uh, saw farms and had friends that had a farm in Wisconsin and stayed with them. But I didn't, I did not know what a grain elevator was when I took the board, when I started studying for the board. <laughs> That's of okay. Trade the test. other thousand guys on the training floor probably didn't either. Right. And it's ironic too, because my ex-husband, John Pranchke ended up working at a grain elevator in central Illinois when we moved here in 1989. So mm-hmm. that was, uh, I just always sort of laughed about that. <laughs> That's crazy. So, how do you remember what it was like opening up your voice for the very first time? You get your, your paper order in your hand. 
Well, again, little quiet artistic girl from Evanston has to say Teledyne Oct250s, <laughs> half bid, like whatever. Like, what was that? What was that right. experience like? And then once you did it, did it was it just you just picked it up really quick and you were cool with the whole business, or did you always kind of feel a little bit nervous uh, before trading? Well, um, first of all, I don't. I mean, people who know me. Um, I'm not a little quiet girl from Evanston. <laughs> so it may look that's okay. No, I, I don't, but that's, I realize that's the impression that I give. Yes. And anyway, but the first time I had to do open outcry was in a mock trading session on the board of trade floor. Mm -hmm. So that was really, uh, that was nerve wracking because I had, that was the first time I'd been on that floor. And I didn't know any of the people and I had no idea what I was doing and it was bad. But from being a phone clerk, I was used to yelling because we did all the hand signals and you'd have to or be in the pit and you'd go out for quotes mm -hmm. and then you'd have to yell back to the booth to get their attention to signal the uh, quote back. So I, you know get into a little um, thing in your head where you just really don't even pay attention to the people sure. around you. You're just focused on that uh, person. You know, every once in a while, I'll catch myself having a conversation with my family where maybe the vacuum cleaner's on or there's too much noise. And I'll still use like, you know, <laughs> like my kids, I say, I love you. And, like, <laughs> and I do the hand. Right. Do you, do you ever pull up the hand signals like every once in a while to your family or your friends? Well, um, see, nobody I'm around anymore is from that, but I do, you know, remember them all. And I mean, my husband now has no idea about any of them. <laughs> so um, it would be convenient. And I know my ex and I, I, we did use hand signals sometime. He'd run into the store and forget something and signal back or whatever. So before cell phones. <laughs> And so what was your, so what was it like for you in, you know, as the bull market was hitting in the eighties? Um, I mean, did you, did you, I think you kind of rotate, let's see, I seem to remember you rotating and being very active in the equity pits, but then I seem to remember you spending quite a bit of time in the OEX pit, unless you were just, you know, playing uh, relay with like Marta or Siobhan and there was um, Teresa, mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't last names, but please, you know, refresh right. your memory. Right. Well, and so by the end of my time on the floor, I left in 87, but the last several years, um, I'd say, I don't remember what year we went to the new floor, but um, the first year or so on the new floor, I floated more. Mm -hmm. And then I found, I really liked being in the OEX pit. So I really was the person there for mm -hmm. us, which, um, and Teresa would be out there a lot too. And Michael would, um, he would come give us breaks, I'd say. I don't remember but, him spending very much time in the pit. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, he didn't, he, he didn't, but, um, he was more, you know, overseeing everything. So did you leave before or after the crash in 1987? I left before the crash. And after, when the crash happened, were you like, whew, 
or <laughs> you kind of wish that you were like, dang, just when I leave, like all the action happens. Right. Because the bull market um, was kind of, I wasn't snoring. It wasn't like, I mean, it was a, a massive rally in 86 and interest rates were, 30-year um, bonds were about 8% and going higher in 1987. So, I mean, what, why, why did you leave? And did you wish you had not gone? And, I, you know, more like, tell me more about the 80s for you. Right. Well, um, it was, I had been thinking that I wanted to phase out of working on the floor. We were uh, going to start try uh, start a family. And I thought I just could not imagine being a mom with a little baby and going and being around all these people all day long and then going home and, you know, take care of the baby. I, I, it just wasn't, you know, what I was thinking. So I, um, thought, well, I'll sell real estate. So that was what I phased into to do. And we adopted our daughter in 89. Um, so, and, um, I don't know. It just, I mean, but when I was on the floor, it was when it was so, 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 so busy. And, you know, before the opening, we'd be getting our orders in and I'd have thousand lot market orders to fill. And it just was just crazy. And uh, Marty Dim and Craig Weil stood right by us. And I mean, I was so thankful for that because they would fill our orders and I didn't even really care if uh, what they were doing with it, if they were making millions. You didn't have to care. You just had to fill the right. order. I mean, sometimes right. they made money. Sometimes they got smoked. I mean, that's just part of the right. signed up for. Exactly. And I'll, I'll have to tell real quick one time, um, Mary Pat Craigie was my clerk out in the OEX and, um, and she was great, but one morning, it was a busy morning. Things were going crazy and she was putting orders together and everything. And I look over and she's doing trades with somebody because (laughs) she's like, well, I'll just help Ann out. And I just was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And it was, I'll never forget that. (laughs) She meant well. Yes. Not well, for sure. Yes, she did. Oh, so boy. that was funny. And then one other funny story, because yeah, I've no, been please. thinking this about is, this. I want to know them all. Yeah. Um, on the old floor, uh, Kodak, um, or I guess it was Polaroid, um, Bob Main was in that pit? Yes. Right. Bob Main. Okay. And um, so I had an order for our company. I had to go fill. And we, it was... Uh, our bid for the, um, whatever the option was. Mm -hmm. And so our traders always, I mean, they couldn't understand if it's our bid, why don't we get all the, the trade, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't split it up. It's our bid. So I was under a lot of pressure from my desk that it's our bid. And, but with the group, they always split things up. And so um, I go in and I, it was our bid, but I didn't fill the order. So I had to stand there and work it. And somebody, you know, another broker came in 
And I was first, thankfully, and I took them all. And Bob was not pleased. He was a curmudgeon. Yes. And he was like, okay, I see how it is. And so I had to play that game first on every trade until I filled the order, which I did. And um, it was, uh, that was, (laughs) I'll just never forget that. We all have memories of people that just really gave us a hard time, uh, you know, in the trading pit, either as a new person, Mm-hmm. not exploiting but you know a little bit of hazing let's call yes. it let's call it what it was it was like being hazed uh yep. and it was uh and but there was money involved <laughs> yeah exactly yep. and so you know generally as a floor broker you're pretty welcome into a pit because it's probably going to help the guys and gals out who are yep. in the pit so you know they are always pretty good but i did um hear some pretty rough things um and you know just sort of have to laugh now with everything you know how the world has changed and people needing their safe spaces and all that and i just think oh my gosh you know i struggle with that all the time i mean (laughs) i still have young kids and their friends and everybody's like triggered or I don't know right to what's her and I have no sympathy for that I I mean I was telling George Doherty today I was 22 I basically borrowed 200 grand in today's dollars and I with with no collateral I mean I lived at home and this guy basically I mean we bought a seat with that money but he backed me like I can't even imagine a 22 year old kid doing that today I mean I'm gonna be honest with you yeah Exactly. I mean, some kids, some of my kids don't even want to call an Uber, you know, and uh, and that's yep. like fifteen dollars. So, yeah, crazy times. That we had a we had an amazing opportunity, and I think for me and probably for you, we had like nothing to lose. I mean, I came from a very blue collar machinist family, and it was either this, or I was going to be a TV tube repairman. I mean, it's honestly was like my choice, and. Amazing, amazing time. So tell me some more stories. What else do you remember from either as your experience as a woman, how you might have been treated differently or even harsher, or then maybe sometimes easier? Or, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, I, yeah, I don't want to presume that it was just all grief, right? But the women. It wasn't. And, you know, like thinking back on it now and, and talking to younger people, I'm like, you know, during our time on the floor, everybody was just, who I, I don't know, there wasn't this identity stuff going on. And so, you know, at Drexel Burnham, yes, there were a lot of women there. And it evolved that the symbol, when you did a trade with um, somebody, what's, you know, who, what, like the book, Mm-hmm. is uh, saying who it is and everybody knows what the symbol was they're cupping their hands right you had a, right and so, so exactly so shakun shakun was like a right shotgun. right Merrill lynch was the bull right uh-huh and uh, and drexel burnham was cupping your breasts your, basically right it was almost right all women, i know and so i mean and there were other symbols so i went up to um kenny silverstein was the main a uh, guy of the book at in the OEX, I believe. And um, it's like, Kenny, come on. You know, you're trying to 
the OEX, or not the OEX, the CBOE is trying to have this more professional type thing. And, you know, we're trying to be uh, looked at in a good way from the outside. Can't you use something else? And he's like, what else is there? And I'm like, how about B, you know? Right. And, uh, but they didn't adopt that. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was the way it is. We just we just kind of went along to get along in a way. But, right, right. But it was it was we didn't even think about it. I mean, I wouldn't. Yes, it was a mm, sexual. Mm, uh, I don't know what word language uh, acronym. I'm not quite sure. What, but being in the trading pit when you're 30 feet away with 500 screaming people, there had we had to over accentuate and over exaggerate. You know, Merrill Merrill like a drill Merrill Lynch and mm -hmm. all the different names. And I don't think, I mean, we might have chuckled once in a while, but honestly, we really weren't thinking much about like who it was. It was right, just... right. And that's, so it just goes back to, you know, uh, I have worked most of my life in an industry that's male oriented. And I think that, you know, I've had success and I just didn't dwell on it and nobody else really dwelled on it. And so now that things have been so, um, uh, I don't know, focused on, oh, it, you know, you need more women here, more. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we had a good cross section of, there were a lot of women that worked on the floor and there actually were a lot of women brokers and there were women market makers. And, you know, it was a pretty more male dominated but a pretty good percentage i would say i would just say that it wasn't so much by design it was just i think guys were attracted to the aggressiveness of the training pit the, the quest for making money and i mean it wasn't that women were excluded i just don't think they were drawn to that kind of environment and call it say whatever you will i'm, I'm not sure if i'm using the right words but you know, women actually, in some cases, had an advantage over the guys because the, I think the men would want the women in the pit and they would uh, let them come in. And I mean, I, I met my wife on the training floor. Yeah, there were a few instances where there was uh, they didn't manage boundaries, you know, physically. But <laughs> once she smacked them in the face or punched them, you know, then she got respect. Uh, yeah. And, probably can't and do I that today. Probably a woman can't punch a man for. Right. I don't know. Maybe they can. I never had any person be inappropriate uh, to me, thankfully. So I'm thankful for that. But I do remember one time in the OEX pit when it was really crowded, um, Nick, Nicky always stood right behind me. I don't remember his last name, but he's, I know I uh, saw Greek, him. He had a Greek last name. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes, and I know. I can picture his face, but I can't remember his last name. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's trading. He's trying to make money. And he really wasn't thinking about what he was doing. And he would, you know, like accidentally hit me and stuff. And one time his elbow came down so hard right on the top of my head. And I just turned around and I said something not very nice. <laughs> but I was like, damn it, Nikki, only I said the full thing. And I said, stop it. And he like, just looked stunned. Like he didn't even realize really he had done it. Sure. 
but <laughs> it was, you know, you just had to <laughs> hold your own. So. And so how were out trades? Did you have, did you ever have that one extraordinary out trade or were you really good at, you know, having your clerks check things and you just, that never was an issue for you? I am very thankful that no, I never had an out trade that, I don't know, that I, I didn't have out trades, thankfully. Good. And I mean, I do sometimes, I heard you asking one of the other people about what nightmares or dreams do you have about the floor? And I mean, I do sometimes have dreams about, I've got a thousand lot order I have to fill. And, <laughs> and the bell's about to ring. Yeah, right, right. So how was your transition into being going into real estate then, Anne? How did you, was this something really exciting for you? Because maybe it was more uh, intellectual, you know, you're doing capitalization rates or maybe commercial real estate. Did you find that it was at a quieter pace that you felt more appropriate for being a mom? Like, was it everything, well, not everything, but was it what you kind of wanted as, as to, as a mom? Well, it did give me the flexibility that I wanted. And so that was really good and it was a good transition and um after let's see i left the floor in 87 and we moved to central illinois in 89 and we were gonna try doing real estate down here and um it just didn't work out so then um i really didn't work as much because our daughter was still really little mm -hmm. and uh then when she was about Oh, 22 months. It was about in 19, well, the beginning of 91. I started working. And um, then in 92 is when I got back onto the retail side and started uh, as a financial advisor in an really? office. Wow. And well, so that's I, what I do. I've, I've got, I'm oh, owned, really? I own a boutique registered investment advisory firm in Illinois. And so tell me about that. Tell me about your. So I um, had, you know, I, I, we moved out to the country in the middle of nowhere in central Illinois. And um, we, the thing that drew us down here was we owned a vacation home in near Shelbyville, Lake Shelbyville yep. with Tom Petros and his wife. I was just going to call. I was just going to say his name. Tommy Petros is the only other guy that I know that ever mentioned Lake Shelbyville. And he I haven't seen him in his boy, I haven't seen him in a few years, but we, yeah. we stayed in contact. Tommy yeah. and, um, and Jeannie. Yeah. And he well, they're let's see. Uh, fourth child got married at the end of January. We, I went to the wedding, so I just saw them there then. But, um, well, Kenny Bellavia, Kenny Bellavia and Gary Bowers also each had a place down there or uh, shared a place down there. So they would go down too. But um, so we moved to central Illinois. I just started working at an insurance company, uh, it was about the worst job I've ever had. And uh, it was in, so let's see, it was the end of 91 and the markets weren't that good and people really weren't hiring, but I did get on with uh, office in Decatur, Illinois at Kemper Securities. Mm -hmm. And so I became a broker. I was there and um, have switched companies a little bit, but um, 
went to Raymond James in 07 and uh, have been in some different offices with them, but uh, I am still with them now. And you are the options expert when it comes to cover call writing <laughs> and hedging strategies. Does any of that come across your desk? Um, really, the clients that I work with uh, have been very extremely conservative people, and they really aren't doing cover call writing. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I haven't really done it. I went through well, that. Uh, so when I left the floor and did investment advising, I was going to bring, you know, call option premium and, uh, you know, really juicy, attractive returns to portfolios. But what happened was um, primarily the market just kept going up and up and up and up. And the clients were like, OK, so Apple, <laughs> Apple is trading at 100. You sold the 80 call. Uh, Amazon is trading at 200. You sold the 170 call. Like, Bill, what's with these? these I, we're getting killed. You know, we weren't yeah. getting killed. We just weren't making what we should have if we had right. just been long only, right? So all the education, all the theories of covered call writing, it was interesting, and I still use them in a little bit of my practice today. But for the most part, you know, when you are in a straight up market year after year after year after year after year, it just, you, you're like, wait, I should have never began this option <laughs> thing. Right. And so, you know, I was lucky when I got on with Kemper, I um, was working as a junior broker to the branch manager of the office who had been in the business since the 60s. And he was one of the biggest advisors in town. And um, his book of business, I was working with people who I never would have had a chance to work with just starting out, you know, so my learning curve was really uh, fast. And I learned a lot, uh, I think, very quickly on this side of it. Do you still have your trading jacket and trading badge? I have a badge, but I don't have my jacket. And your acronym was ANN? Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. three, three, five, two. What 302. Was for, 302 for Bear Stearns. Okay. Nope, for sorry, Drexel uh, Burnham. Burnham. Burnham, yes. Burnham. All right, so let, let's go back to the 70s then. Let's go all the way back. Uh, any other memories from being there in 77? Um, gosh, it was just, I mean, for me and my memories back then, we were just peeling off of the Vietnam War in like 74. There was still so much turbulence. And I wouldn't say that we had much discussion about inflation, maybe a, one or two years later, but I don't know. I just remember it still being, you know, kind of like a, a carefree, hippie-ish kind of time period. I mean, I was the only boy. I've got a sister that's four years older, but maybe I was insulated from what was going on in the economy and global events. But I don't know. I just I just don't remember that much crazy stuff going on in 77, except culturally, not like economically. Right. And I don't remember, you know, so much about 77. I do remember, I think it was in 79, when the New York Stock Exchange traded 86 million shares and we almost fell apart. It was like, oh my gosh. Yes. And I always remember Dave Levinsky saying that was his first day on the floor was that day. Uh -huh. And he and he um, was like, what is going on here? He just couldn't believe it. But um, 
you know, I do remember on Fridays at the end of the day, they would announce the money supply. Yes. Um, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. And so that was always something people were listening for. Well, we would wait for the money supply figure to be released at 312 oh, or something, uh -huh. 308. And we had just enough time, like two minutes, to get in our exercise notices before the market closed. Oh, okay. We could have taken advantage and play that because if we thought the money supply figure was good, we'd exercise deep into money puts. And if we thought that the extra, the money supply number was bad, we would exercise deep into money calls because we knew that we could buy them back cheaper the next day. right? Because, And then, of course, they, they closed that loophole. I forget what year that was, but we didn't. We couldn't do that anymore. So yeah, yeah. I just I I don't remember. And then, um, oh, what else? I don't know. I mean, just uh, they had the little uh, area. You go down the stairs to the seventh floor to leave the floor, and that's where everybody would stand around and smoke. And it was just a big smoke. I forgot area. about that. We could smoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> and we had actually phone booths like set up little like yes. all over the place. You could actually pick up the you had, you know, yeah, like before there were cell phones. That's crazy. Yeah, and other things I remember is when uh, visitors would come to the floor. If it was a nice looking woman, uh, it would like stop trading, <laughs> which was so stupid, right. but it was just unbelievable. And then. Uh, people would have the goofy um, pages that they would call in and ask to be paged. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember, remember any of any. what they were. Yeah, I can't. I remember Johnny Paycheck came to the floor one time to visit and they did something uh, to have him page somewhere, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah, we did. We had some dignitaries come across our floor, but I don't ever remember like seeing them at the time. I, you know, I wasn't going to leave the pit to see Madeline Albright or whatever, like whoever yeah. was there. But yeah. I was having breakfast in the Board of Trade and shook hands with Jimmy Carter in 1970, 1980, when I first started down there as a runner at the Board of Trade. And, and you know, that was back when he had like two bodyguards. I mean, it yeah. was crazy. It was like not what it would be like today. Well, I do remember a story now that you mentioned that. I don't know if it was when Jimmy Carter was there and um, somebody robbed Harris Bank in the Board of Trade building lobby. And all, I thought there were a lot of Secret Service around and the guy got caught right away because he did it when. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah, Bad timing, right? Yeah, the bank when the president was there, and the whole place was surrounded, like with CIA and FBI, and right, oh right. Oh, that's that's really funny. Yeah. Wow. No. Yeah, those were those were the. Now, what did you do on lunch break? Did you were you an outdoors person? Did you hang outside and catch some rays by the horse? Did no, you stay inside yeah. and eat your lunch, or did you go for a walk down Printer's Row? No, I uh, on the old floor, I would actually either eat in the members lounge when I was a member, which it was a little teeny little room on the old floor, but it was quick. Right. And then, um, let's see on the new floor. 
I, I mean, I'd go to brokers a lot because we had an account there. So I could just go order and sign my name. And, but I would just eat at the counter in the back and just eat and go right back. The food was really good there. I mean, I, yes. I basically ate there five days a week for 30 years. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, it was. And one time I was walking back from lunch and there were a couple of women, um, walking in front. I mean, it was crowded, busy Chicago street mm -hmm. and they were two women from the floor and there were these two young men that were walking in front of them. And I just, when I had walked up, I sort of thought something's up here. And so the two young men in front of them, one was limping and they were walking and the boys young, they were, they were boys, teenagers were walking in front of these women and they, the boys started up the stairs to the um, options building and one of them fell over, tripped. And so the women were like, oh, you know, started help. The other guy, I guess the other guy was walking behind them. He starts reaching in the purse of one of the women. The first guy was to distract them. And I go, what are you doing? And they just, ah, and they ran off. They didn't do it. And the women were like, oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, it was just all sorts of scams down there. I remember a guy walking down past the board of trade, uh, past, past the CBOE, and he had what appeared to be two arms carrying like um, dry cleaning, right? The clothes and dresses in a bag. And he would walk up to a woman and he'd say, hey, what do you think about these dresses? Would you like to buy it? But what you didn't see was his other hand was going inside their purse while he was showing them the dry cleaning. And so that was his pickpocket ways of distraction and and snatching things. So yeah, yeah, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's everywhere, right? No matter, yes. no matter where you go. But you just have to be alert. Yeah, the CBOE really wasn't in a very good neighborhood it, when, they, when they built it. I remember starting in 1980, I had to take the Harlem Avenue bus to Higgins because I, I, we lived in Norwood Park, so Edison Park, far northwest side. Harlem Avenue bus to Higgins, Higgins bus to Jefferson Park because that's as far as the CTA went. Then the Jefferson Park blue line all the way into Jackson or LaSalle. And Jackson was okay because it would let you out right by Calder's Flamingo, that big orange uh, steel piece of public art. But if you got off at LaSalle, you were like at LaSalle and Congress, which was really scummy. And I'm like, okay, I'm dead. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> uh, but that's what it was like back then. I, I remember it was just a crummy hotel in the corner and they could little by little regentrified, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all that. So that was good, good times. Right. Right. We ended up, uh, we would drive down every day, just about so mm -hmm. we would usually park pretty close, but um, then found uh, the uh, prices were always going up. And we went to a lot that was on the south side of, what would that be, Congress. And it wasn't real far, but walk a couple of blocks and save a few bucks. So sure. we did that, but it was nice to have the vehicle at the end of the day. So for sure. So good. do you stay in touch with anybody, Anne? Uh, yeah, well, the Petroses, I mean, um, I was part of owning that place in Shelbyville with them for over 25 years. And so my daughter grew up with their kids and 
that was just really great. And uh, so I don't see them that often, but um, like I said, I was at the wedding in January. I'm calling them. I'm, as, soon as, I, as soon as I get it done with this, I'm going to call them just so you know and say hi, because I haven't talked okay. to them in so long. Uh, okay, <laughs> great. And then um, on Facebook really is how I'm connected with most people. Mm -hmm. And um, I am connected with, um, well, I'd say Kathy Klein is more active on Facebook. She was one and Marge Beaver and Dolores Villacres. Oh my gosh. Yes. I want to uh -huh. talk to them. I want to please <laughs> reach out to them for me. Right. And I want to, I'd like to, I'd like to do D. I remember, I remember her, uh, uh -huh. we kind of treated it in the same pits when we first started, but fireball, uh -huh. fireball. Yeah. Marsh Beaver again. I remember her being relatively quiet. Uh, I mean, I didn't know her very well, but D I'm not going to say we started at the same time, but we traded in the Brown room, I think for a while together. And she was okay. just a pistol. Yes. I mean, yeah. took no grief from anybody. She was right. something else. Yep. She's great. She's great. And, um, Let's see who else. I sorry anybody I'm forgetting, but you know some other friends that aren't really on Facebook too much. Although I'm connected with them, but in real life, no, I don't really see you know many people anymore. It's same, just, you know. Yeah. I've, I've told everybody else, and they've kind of told me the same thing. You know, some guys went out afterwards or on the weekends to play golf. I, you know, I just for me it was just a job. I mean, mm -hmm. you trade. The bell rings, you go up and exchange your coat and you go home. Like that was it. It was just different. Uh... Right. Well, it, it really was my life and my circle of friends and everything. But then um, being away from it, you know, moving to central Illinois, really, um, you know, you get away from it that way. Sure. And so, you know, but... Um, a lot of really, really great times and met some really, really great people, some really wild people. Um, and uh, just, you know, was a great part of my life that I really enjoyed. It was. It was really the the best of the best. And it was, I, I, I do I miss it? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word, uh, but it was and now, as I said before, now that I start seeing people that were original members or there in the 70s begin to pass away, I do probably look more fondly upon that time because it was an amazing part of history that we frankly just didn't. Because it's gone. It's like, oh, my gosh, look at what we were a part of. Look yeah. at what we were a part of. And I mean, and it's so funny to think that um, I remember. um uh, on the old floor, Danny Asher was there, and I think it was him, had a mobile phone. And it was like, what is that? You know, that was really early adopter. I, I think it was some sort of bag phone, maybe. Yes. But, you know, and just to think that everybody did all this without computers, really. I know. I know. My, I, my first job as a clerk was with John Stafford and he used to fly to Connecticut or Boston on the weekends. And I would have a Texas instruments computer where I would dial into a number about eight o'clock and I would take, use a push button then would take the handset and put it into this, these two cups on top of the Texas mm -hmm. instruments. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. We would download all the closing prices from CompuServe or something like that. It would create graphs, like charts. I would print them all out, put them in a FedEx package, and then drop them off before 9 o'clock at night down in the loop. And then take the CTA home at flipping 9.30 at night. <laughs> and he would receive them the next morning and look at charts all day long, you know, on the weekend. And then he'd come back and make trades for Monday morning. So Federal Express overnight was like whew, amazing technology. And, right. and, and and to show off at my girlfriend's house where I would dial in to CompuServe and, you know, put right. the that in. You could hear the modem connecting, yes. you know, it was just so high tech back then. <laughs> <laughs> really? Wow. All right. Well, Anne, listen, thank you so much for walking with me down this trip of memory lane and remembering, you know, the beautiful parts and probably some of the frustrating parts of being at the CBOE and in what was a male dominated space. But <laughs> you held your own. You've done good. And uh, it's really great to catch up with you. So thank you. And please, I want to talk to the people that you know, because these are all really important stories and everybody has a different perspective yeah okay yep i'll see if i can connect you and sorry this lighting did not work out well, that's okay you're fine but <laughs> anyway so um i'll uh let them get connected with you if they want to proceed i hope they do because i like i said i just love hearing all these stories they bring back a lot of memories and yeah, it's sure. been fun sure. and thank you for doing it you're welcome it. i'll chat with you later then ann Okay, thanks. Bye. -bye. Bye. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Senecal Capital Management, LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Senecal Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.